Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It gives me great pleasure to be here tonight and to welcome you to our second Perspectives Asia seminar series for 2011. I'm Marie Wilson, the Academic Dean for Griffith Business School, and these, it's a pleasure to be in this location, to be in this beautiful gallery, and to be together with you tonight for this really um, exciting um, event for us. These public seminars were launched in 2005 by the Griffith Asia Institute and the Queensland Art Gallery's Australian Centre of Asia Pacific Art to explore all of those important issues that confront us around contemporary culture, politics, and society in our region. And I think there's no better place to do that than this wonderful gallery, which brings together art and culture from so many different perspectives in our region. And I hope you get a chance to see some of the exhibits that are here. They're fabulous. I'd like to acknowledge a few members of our audience. Ms. Lenine Ford, the Chancellor of Griffith University, and Professor Ian O'Connor, our Vice Chancellor and President, are in the front row and join us here tonight. I'd really like to thank our seminar partner, the Australian Centre of Asia Pacific Art at the Queensland Art Gallery, and in particular its Deputy Director, Curatorial and Collection Development, Suhanya Rafael, and we'll hear from Suhanya in a little bit later. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which we're gathered tonight and pay my respects to the spirit of this land and her people, who are part of the oldest surviving and continuous culture in the world, one that we can be proud of and one that we can host this kind of debate and uh, dialogue that we engage in tonight. We are very honored tonight to have one of Australia's most highly regarded and respected chefs with us. We've just finished a little while ago a short tour of the Poetry of Dreams, um, the Surrealism exhibit here. I'd always thought that the Poetry of Dreams was food. And so I'm really happy to be able to uh, hear tonight uh, what Elizabeth has to say to us. Um, Elizabeth Chong is a well-known personality in Australia's food industry and is affectionately known in Melbourne as the Empress of Chinatown. Uh, she's an award-winning author, has written um, eight books on Asian cooking. Her celebrity chef status was confirmed undeniably following 14 years on national television before we knew that celebrity chefs were all the, the fashion on the Ben Newton Good Morning Australia program, where many of you have probably seen her. We've all seen the rise and influence of recent years of cooking programs and celebrity TV chefs. Tonight, it's an honor to hear from one of Australia's original celebrity chefs. This year, she celebrates 50 years, I'm probably not supposed to say that, of uninterrupted careers of teaching at her cooking school. She's also a Lifetime Australia Day ambassador and promotes her dual role as Australian and Chinese ambassador through food. What a wonderful cultural medium. Ladies and gentlemen, please make welcome Miss Elizabeth Chong. Thank you, Marie, for that uh, very warm welcome. It's indeed lovely to be here in Brisbane. I'm a true Melbourne person, <laughs> but it's always a great pleasure when I visit this state because I do have family who live over here and it gives me a 
a second reason each time I come to go a little bit further south, I think, to visit my, my family there. So, uh, yes, we're going to talk a little bit about um, Asian, particularly Chinese food, and, of course, I am fairly well qualified, I think. Uh, you were correct. It is 50 years of continuous teaching. And uh, if I were to tell you I opened my school in 1961, and I think... I think about 37,000 students have been through my kitchen door. Uh, it is quite incredible, so I can imagine that there are many homes in Victoria that uh, has the sound of the Chinese chopper and the sizzling wok, and I have, to, I have to be responsible, I think, for many of them. So what put me into that position, I guess, it was uh, a matter of, um, I, I guess it was just a natural progression of what I really am and how I was, how I was raised. I, um, I'm the daughter of Chinese parents, so I was actually born in China but came to Australia at the age of three. Uh, that was in 1934. So if you don't have to be brilliant at mathematics, you might be able to work that one out. <laughs> so... Um, I've talked about Chinese food almost as though it's, it's gospel to me. It's, I almost felt it was a mission of mine to spread the word of Chinese food to Australians. And that is the one driving force, the one great motivation behind everything I do. Um, one morning, my postman knocked on the door to give me a special parcel and he said, um, do you know, where can one get real Chinese food these days? I miss the food that we used to get. And when I got talking to him a little bit later, he stayed chatting for a few minutes more and I realised he was talking about the food that he used to get in the... Um, the 19, oh, in the 1940s and the 1950s, and it really was the Chinese food that had evolved from the goldfield days. Now, I can understand a nostalgia for that sort of food because for the, that kind of, that interpretation of Chinese food at that time, because uh, you can imagine the um, population then, particularly in the goldfields, the Europeans were living on a pretty stodgy diet of um, probably damper and uh, little else, I think. They hadn't heard of fresh vegetables and it was the Chinese who brought that to them. And then the little cafes that sprung up as a result of that was, became eventually the food, the Chinese food that the Australians really were nurtured on. And so that was the first taste of something which was wildly exciting and it had amazing flavours, you know, that uh, it, it bowled them over from the stodgy food that's perhaps that they had inherited from, from Britain, I, I imagine, most of them. And uh, I assured him that Chinese food was alive and well and that he should perhaps go into Chinatown a little bit more and he would, um, he would start to get used to the idea of new Chinese food. Of course, that was real Chinese food now, but he thought it was new Chinese food. Anyway, I think I'm going back to those days, and in 1921, no, no, I have to go back to the goldfields, because surely the, the, um, the first time Chinese food was ever served to European, or when I say European, or Western, or should I say non-Chinese people, was certainly on the goldfields in Australia. I I'd have read accounts of how the European diggers would smell the food coming out from the Chinese camps, and it wasn't long before they were seconded to come and cook for them, and they were quite amazed. Some pretty lurid stories about, you know, chefs with choppers and, um, and veg vegetables being tossed with great passion in a sizzling wok, and, and I think, you know, it became quite glamorised. 
And uh, when the gold petered out, then the Chinese turned, those who had to survive and stay here for various reasons did not go home back to China. They opened up businesses or they went into work that was natural for them. These, you might remember, were not skilled men in any way. These were the, we, these were the Chinese who were brought out as laborers, some of them indentured laborers by the Victorian government, those who came out in search of El Dorado, of the New Gold Mountain, and they were all farmers or they were shepherds, they were even coolies, but certainly not learned men of any letters whatsoever, certainly not businessmen, but then when the gold petered out, they found they had to make a living somehow and they turned to, the, actually I suppose it was the three trades that they were naturally skilled at. Number one was cooking, number two was laundry, and number three was market, market gardens. And that's how the Chinese settled. And they, they not only just survived, but they survived well, doing those three things that came naturally to them. And I think there's a record of the first Chinese restaurant that was ever open to non-Chinese people, that is to Europeans, um, was in Ballarat in 1858, I think, 1858. And it was owned by a John R. Lu, who was a shepherd in China, and uh, he just forsook the gold mining and went into cooking because that seemed to be what a lot of people were, were looking for. And I think the food, if you can believe the drawings of the day, I've seen them in the newspapers of those days, uh, they were, would have been absolutely unknown to any Chinese person. They were just huge mounds of meat served on a plate and was always served to an all-male clientele and was, you know, on separate plates, of course, and the idea that this food was totally unknown in China didn't occur to anybody. They thought they were, they were eating Chinese food. But the Chinese ever, I think, resourceful <laughs> and natural businessmen could, they adapted what they knew to suit the, the, um, the European or the Australian palate at that time. And, uh, I, I think, and so it went on, went on from there. And um, I think then probably the Australians were beginning to, to get the idea that this was a food that they could have more regularly. And uh, by the 1950s, even perhaps even a little bit before that, there were queues. Did you have that in Brisbane? Queues outside any, every Chinese restaurant in every suburb. Everybody had billies and saucepans in hand and every Sunday was Chinese night, you know. And Australians loved it. They just loved, um, I think, one restaurant, the Chunghua Cafe, particularly in Melbourne's Chinatown, listed 15 kinds of chop suey. And uh, the 15 kinds incorporated, you know, pork, uh, chicken with almonds and pork with cashews, lobster with pineapple, all of those dishes that please the Australian palate. And then uh, many of them used to pour bottle, um, from the bottle of soy sauce and even tomato sauce over all the dishes of Chinese food served then. And uh, so from 1920s that started in Little Burke Street and by the 1950s it had gone out to all, all the suburbs. 
So I, I imagine, uh, I think even before that, even when the Chinese food was popular to the sense that people were going to Chinese restaurants and not being afraid, the Chinese themselves saw, them, saw themselves a little differently. They, there was a little bit, I suppose, of a, um, a cultural cringe in which they were too afraid to show the real thing. You know, they were catering all the time to, really, it was the lowest common denominator. And um, I don't know when, 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 when it ever stopped, but I can remember seeing on menus and on windows all Chinese, Chinese food, but also Australian dishes, mixed grill. Do you remember mixed grills? There would be one piece of steak, very overcooked, one greasy chop, and one fat sausage on the plate. That would be a mixed grill. And very popular was roast lamb with three veg that would be on the windows also, and uh, salads. And the salads that went with it was always shredded lettuce, two slices of beetroot, I think, and a, and a tomato quartered, and that was the salad of those days. And that's what the Chinese cooks used to present, along with their Chinese food, because, you know, there were those who went to Chinese restaurants, but heaven forbid they didn't want to eat Chinese food, but they ate the greasy chop, and the sausage, even though it was cooked by a Chinese chef, but a cook, but um, that was all right because it wasn't really that foreign food. So that, that was in, in those days and uh, early 20s, I think. I wasn't here in the 20s, but the 30s and the 40s, 40s certainly, I lived through the 40s and the 50s and the 60s of Chinese, not so much Asian food, then just Chinese food here. And uh, the menu was practically the same everywhere. It was the chop suey. I'll tell you the story how chop suey started. Does anybody know the story of chop suey? <laughs> like all stories, you don't know how true it is. But I think it was that on the gold fields, whether it was Australia or America, I'm not quite sure, but some very hungry diggers came in at the end of the 